Hey y'all, Ohio Crime Mom here with part two of the Andrew Cunanan Prime to Kill series. We don't really have any announcements today other than this is a super long episode, so bear with me for it. With that being said, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Jeff Trell had told his sister he was nervous over the visit from Andrew and David Matson's friends were also hesitant over the visit. Jeff actually confronted Andrew days before he came and let him know that he was done with him. Jeff made plans to be out of town the weekend that Andrew was coming into town. On April 25th, Jeff and his longtime boyfriend left town, but Jeff had given Andrew permission to stay at his apartment for that evening. Andrew arrived in Minneapolis on August 25th with one black duffel bag in tow. Inside of Andrew's bag was five 200 milligram bottles of testosterone, handcuffs, and violent pornography. Later that evening, Andrew and David went out to dinner with some of David's friends. This was across the street from the Harmony Lofts where David lived. David's friends said that David seemed off and that Andrew was very strange. After dinner, Andrew and David went back to the gay 90s, but Andrew left David there. On Saturday the 26th of April, David woke up early worked out and spoke to some friends, making dinner plans for that evening. Friends say they heard Andrew ask David who he was speaking to, so we know that Andrew was there in the early morning. On Sunday, April 27th, one of David's neighbors reported hearing loud yelps and thumping coming from David's apartment. These sounds started around 3 a.m. and lasted till around 7 a.m. In the late morning of Sunday the 27th, David canceled lunch plans with a friend and was later spotted by a neighbor walking into a bookstore with Andrew. At 5.30 p.m. on the 27th, Andrew was spotted getting out of the elevator at the Harmony Lofts on David's floor. At 8 p.m. on the 27th, Andrew called Jeff, Jeff Trell's apartment and left a voicemail asking Jeff to call him. He also gave the number to David's apartment. Jeff called Andrew back and agreed to meet him at a coffee shop at 9 p.m. Jeff left and told his boyfriend he would meet him between 10 and 10.30 p.m. at the gay 90s. This was the last time that they would ever see each other. Andrew never showed up at the coffee shop, so Jeff headed to David's apartment. He arrived around 9.45 and was attacked by a claw hammer almost immediately. A neighbor heard someone yell, quote, get the F out of here, end quote, followed by thumping noises. The first blow to Jeff landed on his skull, and he was also found to have defense wounds all over his neck and or hands and arms. He was struck over 27 times, and this was a very brutal attack. Jeff's watch stopped at 9.55 p.m. Jeff was then rolled up in a rug and dragged over to the sofa. We have no idea where David was when this happened. Jeff's boyfriend was very scared and upset, so the very next morning he called the police. Police told him mm -hmm. unless mm -hmm. Jeff's parents called or he waited 72 hours, they could not file a report. After calling the police, he heard Andrew's message on the voicemail and called David's apartment two times with no response. On Monday, April 28th, David did not show up to an important meeting at work and his co-workers became concerned. On Tuesday, the 29th of April, he missed work once again, and his co-workers became panicked and decided to go to David's loft to check in on him. 
Upon arrival, they knocked on David's door and said they could hear da Prince, David's dog, scratching at the door and what sounded like whispers, but nobody answered the door. The co-workers called police around 2.30 p.m., and they came but never went inside the apartment. Upset over this, the co-workers left a message for the super of the building, telling them what was going on and asking for a phone call. One of David's neighbors saw David and Andrew on Monday in the elevator, and another neighbor saw them walking Prince Tuesday morning. On the Tuesday morning sighting, the neighbor stated that David looked disheveled and he was crying. At 4 p.m. on Tuesday, the super received the message from David's co-workers and headed to his apartment with the master key to unlock it. Upon opening the door, she was greeted by the sight of Jeff Trail's lifeless body in a rug next to the sofa. She originally believed it was David's body, so she left with Prince and called the police, who arrived within 15 minutes. Police began searching the apartment immediately upon arrival. In the fridge, they found two partially eaten plates of food. In the bedroom, they found two glasses of water, handcuffs, leg cuffs, lubrication, and masking tape. Also in the bedroom, they found Andrew's duffel bag with an empty gun holster, an empty magazine, and a box of bullets with 10 missing. And now for a word from our sponsors. At this point in time, David and Andrew were in David's red Jeep Grand Cherokee heading down Highway 35. The coroner arrived at David's at 7.20 p.m., but Jeff Trell was not identified until he arrived at the morgue. This was due to Jeff having his wallet with his identification in his pocket. Police had stated originally that David had killed Jeff in a gay sex thing gone wrong and then fled. There are two important detectives in this part, Sergeant Robert Titchett and Sergeant Steve Wagner. Titchett believed David was responsible for the murder of Jeff but Wagner believed that they would find David dead at the hands of Andrew Cunanan. Titchett put out an APB for David's Jeep, but did not mention Andrew or that they should be detained. Titchett was satisfied with saying the case was a lover's triangle gone wrong, but David's family and friends were completely outraged by this. David and Jeff were both outed to their families against their wills. On Saturday, May 3rd, two friends were at East Rush Lake looking for a place to camp that night. This was less than an hour drive from David's apartment. The two friends would find the body of David Matson. David was found lying on his back wearing jeans and a flannel. His body was around 12 feet away from the water. David had been shot three times, once in his right eye, once to his right cheek, and once in his back between his shoulder blades. David's body had been dragged 20 feet from where he had been shot at. Police failed to do testing to determine David's time of death, but stated they believed David had been with Andrew for five days before he was killed. The police closed the case quick, but what they failed to realize was that on Wednesday, on the Wednesday before David was found, Andrew was already in Chicago where his third murder would take place. Mm -hmm. 
Marilyn Migland left Chicago on the same day that Andrew arrived. She was going to Canada to sell her own line of cosmetics. She told her husband Lee she would be back Sunday, gave him a kiss, and left. Lee Miglin was a 75-year-old, prominent Chicago real estate investor. He and Marilyn had two children and had both created their own empires. On Sunday, May 4th, Marilyn arrived home to Chicago and was upset when Lee was not at the airport to pick her up. She took a cab home and was disturbed when she walked inside, knowing something was wrong immediately. The Miglin's neighbors, the buyers, were returning home when Marilyn ran over and explained something was wrong. The buyers went inside the Miglin's to find the home a wreck. On the kitchen counter was a pint of melted ice cream. In the kitchen sink was a half-empty can of Coke. And in Lee's office was a bone-in ham sitting on Lee's desk with a knife stuck in it. They also found that in the bathroom, someone had bathed and shaved in the sink. A gun was also found on the bathroom sink, and in a closet, clothes had been tossed around. They then decided to head out to the garage and noticed that Lee's dark green Lexus was gone. By this point, Marilyn had already called police. When a police arrived, they searched the home, and then Mrs. Byers unlocked the side garage door for them. Mrs. Byers then noticed brown wrapping paper on the floor, and when she lifted it up, she saw the blood. I'm going to go ahead and insert a trigger warning because this murder is extremely graphic. Lee Miglin's body was found underneath of his son's Jeep. His injuries were as followed. He had been slashed seven to eight times across his neck with a bone saw. He was stabbed multiple times with a screwdriver in his chest. He had an orange extension cord wrapped around his ankles eight times, along with a gardening glove shoved in his mouth. Lee had also been be beaten very badly. He had masking tape wrapped around his head with only his nostrils exposed, along with two bags of concrete on his chest that had broken all of his ribs. One of Lee's shoes were missing and he had been redressed due to the fact that there was no stabs in his shirt, but there was on his chest. Lee's time of death was between 2.15 p.m. on Saturday and 6 a.m. on Sunday. Along with the missing Lexus, some of Marilyn's jewelry was missing, as well as two leather coats, $2,000 in cash, and a dozen pairs of black socks. The media would overshadow Lee's tragic death by speculating that Lee was a homosexual man and that sorry, and that Andrew had bound him up for sexual reasons and then killed him. The attack on Lee seemed very personal. There was no signs of forced entry at the Miglins, and the buyer's dog, who hated strangers, never made a peep. David's red Jeep Grand Cherokee was seen on a street one street away on Friday, and it had been moved on Saturday to another street. Along with this was statements from Andrew's friends saying that Andrew had told them he had a rich real estate man in Chicago who took care of him. The Miglin family denies any connection to Andrew Cunanan. The tragic murder of Lee Miglin did give new life to the search, into the search for Andrew Cunanan, though. The FBI were now involved. The Chicago police knew that inside Miglin's Lexus was a car phone. This phone would send out a location every time the ignition started or somebody tried to use it. 
Due to this, they were able to track Andrew over the next few days. On Monday, May 5th, the day after Lee Miglin's body was discovered, Andrew arrived in New York City. We know Andrew was in New York until at least Thursday. He was not located or apprehended during this time, though, due to them, to, due to them using his senior yearbook photo, which was nothing what he looked like at that point. On Thursday, May 8th, Andrew had tried to use the car phone, and this pinged him in Pennsylvania. We do not know who he had tried to call. On Friday, May 9th, media made a huge mistake by broadcasting that the FBI was using the phone to track Andrew. Andrew pulled over on the side of the road where a witness saw him attempting to tear off the car's antenna. He then cut the wires on the phone and removed the headliner to cut wires. What he didn't know was the power box was in the trunk and the phone was still sending his location. Andrew then pulled into an information booth at the Del Delaware Memorial Bridge. He asked for pamphlets on local historical sites. He chose to go to Fort Mott State Park in New Jersey. New Jersey. Fort Mott State Park is right next to Fens Point Memorial Cemetery. Bill Reese had been the caretaker at Fens Point for 20 years. Bill was an avid war historian who liked to be outside and to work with his hands. He had been married to his wife Rebecca since 1978 and had a young son named Troy at the time. Every day around 3.30, Bill would drive out to the main road to get the mail. He would then drive back to the caretaker's cottage and put the mail inside before locking up and heading home. Somehow, Andrew would choose Bill to be his next victim. Andrew pulled back to the barn and walked in the side door of the cottage. Bill was such a creature of habit, and when he hadn't returned home on time, Rebecca became worried. She was afraid that Bill may have fallen or gotten hurt. Rebecca and Troy, the Reese's son, drove to the cemetery. When they arrived, Rebecca went inside the cottage and began yelling for Bill. She received no reply. She saw his Bible open on the desk and Christian music was playing. Rebecca called her father while still inside the cottage and told him the situation. She then told him Bill's truck was gone, but that there was a dark green Lexus parked outside. Rebecca's father had seen and heard the news and told her to leave the cottage and call police from the main road. When police arrived, they searched the cottage and saw no sign of Bill. They soon realized that the basement was locked from the inside and from the outside entrance as well. When they broke into the basement, they would find Bill Reese shot execution style on the floor. Bill was Andrew's fourth victim in 12 days. The only reason for Bill Reese's death was because Andrew needed a different vehicle. This was a crime of opportunity and there was absolutely zero connection between Andrew Cunanan and Bill Reese. A 40 caliber shell was found next to Bill Reese's body and this matched a shell that was next to David Matson's body. This meant that the shells were shot from the same gun. This gun had been stolen from Jeff Charles' apartment. In Lee Miglin's Lexus, they found Lee's missing shoe, along with the bloody screwdriver Andrew had stabbed Miglin with. And now for one last word from our sponsors. Rella's Wonder Crafts is a small family-owned crafting business located here in Southern Ohio. 
They make a variety of crafts from custom shirts and tumblers to decals and wreaths, plus so much more. Since 2017, they have been creating magic and happiness by bringing our, their customers and visions to life. Come take a peek into their world. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and TikTok. And just in time for Christmas, you can get so many great things. By this time, Andrew was heading south and stopped in South Carolina to steal a license plate to replace spills and to distract cops. On May 11th, Andrew arrived in Miami Beach, Florida. He got a room at the Normandy Plaza Hotel. On May 12th, Time Magazine did a piece on Andrew's killings. The very same day, Vanity Fair would do a piece on the Versace siblings. Gianni Versace was born on December 2nd, 1946 in sorry, it's weird, Italy. His mother was a dressmaker, and from a very young age, Gianni showed interest in following his mother's footsteps. When Gianni graduated from high school, he began working for his mother, designing and making dresses. In 1965, Gianni opened his first shop. In 1972, Gianni had moved to Milan and began designing for other companies. And in 1978, he launched his own line, Versace, with the help of siblings Donatella and Santo. Family was very important to Versace, so much so that he called Donatella his muse. And in 1980, he launched a perfume called Blonde for Donatella. Gianni created clothes to make women feel beautiful the way that he saw them. Gianni and his longtime partner, Antonio D'Amica, were traveling to Cuba when they had a layover in Miami. This is how Gianni fell in love with the city. And in 1992, he purchased Casa Casarino on Ocean Drive. He spent $3.2 million on renovations, and if you have never seen pictures of Versace's mansion, please go look them up. It is the most breathtaking home I've ever seen in my life. On June 12th, Andrew finally moved Bill's truck from in front of the Normandy Plaza to the 13th Street Municipal Garage. This garage was right around the corner from Versace's mansion. The same day, Andrew became the 449th person added to the FBI's most wanted list. In early July, Andrew pawned a gold coin from Lee Miglin. He received $190 for the coin. He had given the pawn shop his real ID and his real name, but police never caught this even though the pawnbroker turned in all of the paperwork. Lori Weeder was working as one of the two openly gay law enforcement officers in Miami Beach. Keith Evans was a rookie in the FBI, and yet he was the agent assigned to the Cunanan case. Weeder found it strange that when Evans came into the police department, he only brought one flyer of Andrew Cunanan with him. Evans told Weeder he wanted to keep the investigation low-key. Due to this, there were no flyers of Andrew placed around Miami to where locals could have recognized him. July 15, 1997, was an average Tuesday morning for Gianni Versace. He left his home and walked three blocks to the News Cafe where he purchased five magazines and a cup of coffee. He then walked the three blocks back home. 
This was something he did every single day. As Gianni Versace was unlocking the gate to his home, he was unaware that Andrew Cunanan was behind him, wearing shorts, a tank top, and a black baseball cap with gun in tow. Versace had looked up to smile at a female passerby, and as he did, he was shot twice. The first bullet hit the back of his neck at the base of his skull. This shot severed Gianni Versace's spinal cord. This bullet came out of the front of his neck and hit the gate. The fragments of this bullet hit a mourning dove, killing it as well. The second bullet was shot as Versace was turning to his right in utter shock and entered the side of his face around the cheek area, cracking his skull when it ended. Antonio D'Amico, Versace's longtime partner, ran outside and began to hold Versace. Versace's neighbor, Lazario Quinta, was at the Versace residence and ran outside with Antonio. He then began chasing after Andrew, who the female passerby had pointed out, yelling for him to stop. He gave up chasing Andrew when Andrew pulled a gun on him. Andrew Cunanan had ran to the 13th Street garage where he had previously parked Bill Reese's truck. He changed his clothes and left the garage, blending back into the crowd. At 9.12 a.m., the police found the clothes and the truck, and this was when it was discovered that Andrew Cunanan was who was behind the murder of Gianni Versace as well. At 9.17 a.m., a cop who was in the alley said he saw a dark-haired, dark-skinned man in a red shirt pacing the roof of the 13th Street garage. Now the posters of Andrew Cunanan were being plastered all over Miami Beach. At the same time, at the Versace mansion, media trucks were already arriving. A passerby was able to run home to get his camera and get back to get a picture of Versace's bare feet as he was being loaded into the ambulance. This person tried to sell the picture for $35,000 the very next day. At 9.21 a.m., Gianni Versace was pronounced dead at the age of 50. The Versace family wanted Gianni cremated and out of the states as quick as possible. Due to Florida laws, this was not going to be the case. Florida says that any victim of a homicide must stay in the state's custody for 48 hours. There is a lot of speculation that the family was trying to rush Gianni's remains out of state due to him being HIV positive. On Wednesday morning, Gianni's body was released to a local funeral home, but the family had to wait until Thursday before cremation. A member of the family or a trusted family friend was with the body until the cremation. Versace's ashes were then given to Donatella and she flew home immediately. Donatella has never returned to Miami Beach again. On July 16th, the owner of a sailboat went to check on his boat after being out of town for a few days. He quickly noticed that someone had been living on his boat he also claimed at the very same time to see a man matching Andrew's description sitting on a bench reading a book. Fernando Carrara was a caretaker for a two-story houseboat owned by Torsten Renicht. Renicht. I can't say it right. I'm sorry. Carrara said on July 19th, Renicht called him asking him to check on the houseboat. On the 23rd of July, Carrara went to the do as Renicht had asked. Upon arrival, he noticed the lock had been broken, 
So he went inside to check things out. Inside, he had discovered someone had been living there. He drew his gun, fearing someone may still be inside, and heard a shot ring out from the second floor master bedroom. He fled the houseboat, where he then called his 15-year-old son, who called police. Within five minutes, police and a SWAT had arrived and surrounded the entire houseboat. Police did everything they could to try and get whoever was inside to communicate with them. At this time, they had everything blocked off to the media. Media were streets away, but yet they, the media decided to put helicopters in the air. And at this point, police became upset, thinking that Andrew may know what was going on outside. So at around 8.30 p.m., the police cut power to the houseboat, threw in some tear gas, and SWAT entered. Andrew Cunanan, age 27, was found in the master bedroom on the bed, propped up by pillows. Cunanan had shot himself in the mouth. And really, that's all of the story to the man who killed Gianni Versace. Now, there are plenty of conspiracy theories. There are plenty of sad things that happened to Versace's family after his death, um, especially how um, Antonio was treated. Um, Donatella and Santo, which was Gianni's siblings, basically made Antonio feel as if he had never been a part of Gianni's life. Um, I don't believe that they originally agreed with the two of them being together. We still don't know that if Gianni Versace was actually HIV positive, that's still a conspiracy theory. Um, it's very likely, but we do not know. Donatella will tell you that he suffered from ear cancer. Um, but there are plenty of conspiracy theories and stuff like that that go along with this. And if you guys are interested in that, I would be more than willing to do a live on the Facebook group and discuss some of those um, if there's enough interest in that. So if that's something you're interested in, please, please, please let me know. And now for our small business spotlight, which we have a new one this week. Mountain Melts is a small wax melt business that was started by Katie Pence. She sells homemade wax melts of many scents to fill your home all year round, including popular favorites such as blueberry cheesecake, pumpkin pecan waffles, and birthday cake. She also has many holiday scents that will only be around until January, so make sure to stock up on your favorites. These include Snickerdoodle, Frosted Pine, and Winter Candy Apple. These melts are affordable, great quality, and can be purchased on her Facebook page, Mountain Melts. And I think that is all I have for you guys this week. I feel like writing this case took me forever. Um, I hope it ends up being as long as I thought it was going to be because I had over 27 pages of notes. And I wrote basically from the moment I woke up today until about 15 minutes ago um, when I started recording. I'm not sure. Maybe it was longer than that. <coughs> Excuse me. Cold air made me choke. Um, but yeah, so I will try to do a live this weekend on the Ohio Crime Mom Facebook page or group. Sorry. And then I will have a Christmas episode for you guys next week. And then I will be taking the week of Christmas off. Um, hopefully you guys understand. Um, as the name of my podcast, Ohio Crime Mom, states I am a mother to a beautiful little four-year-old girl who the week of Christmas is everything for her. 
we have Christmas movies every night and popcorn and fun all the way up until Christmas Eve. And um, so, yeah, the week of Christmas is extremely busy for us. So I am taking that entire week off. Um, but I will have a Christmas case for you guys next week. And then I will be back the week after Christmas. So I just want to thank you guys for all of your support. We're getting ready to close out our first year of having a podcast, which it's not quite been a year, but we will be closing out 2020 very, very soon. Hopefully 2021 will be better for us. And I am so happy to see this podcast grow and to see how much interest there is in this. And I cannot thank you all enough for your support. I'm sure on our New Year's, New Year's episode, there will be a huge dedication to some of the people who have really helped and supported this podcast. Um, once again, as reminders, on the Facebook page, there is a link to donate to our PayPal to help with purchasing of equipment. My mic was supposed to have came in Tuesday and FedEx lost it. So now I have to repurchase a mic. Um, and there is also a link to our Amazon wish list that um, has the supplies and things like that that I will need. Also, you can donate through Anchor um, and have a monthly sponsorship. If you do that, you will receive a discount code for your next purchase of Ohio Crime Mom merch. Um, also, I am working on getting some Ohio Crime Mom stickers made to go out for that and as well as a handwritten letter. So I just want to say once again, thank you guys so much. And until next time, this has been Ohio Crime Mom. Thanks.